0: Let's pray. God, thank you for our time of worship today that's hopefully focused us on your son Christ and the grace that he has brought us. We want to turn now to a discussion about your grace and incorporating your word and your truth into our discussion. And so, God, I pray that as we do so now, that you might be honored. I pray, Lord, that you might speak each to us individually as well as as a whole when it comes to this thing called grace. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, during a a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if anything, was unique to Christianity. And and as they started the discussion, they said, well, how about the Bible? That's unique to Christianity. But as they talked about it, they realized that there are other religions that have holy books that also claim to be from God, so that's not necessarily unique Well, they said, well, what about the incarnation? You know, God becoming a man, that's unique to Christianity. But as they talked about it further, they also realized that there were other religions in the history of the world that claimed to have a deity coming in human form. Well, they said the the resurrection then. Uh, But again, they they realized that there were other faiths that had accounts of people returning from the dead. And the debate went on and on until C.S. Lewis, the famous Oxford professor and author, wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis said, That's easy, it's grace. And after about an hour or more of discussion, they all agreed. Folks, if there is one thing that is absolutely central to the gospel message, core to the character of God, it's this thing we're studying right now at our church his grace. This idea of unmerited favor, of God's attention and activity in our lives, not because of anything that we have done or anything that we could do, but simply and powerfully because He chooses to, that's the redundant theme throughout all of Scripture. You'll read about it in Genesis all the way up through Revelation, the idea that God is a God of grace who gives us his love, his activity, as we're going to see today, even redemption and salvation, because he chooses to, not because somehow we have earned it. Paul the Apostle, a man who wrote more than a dozen New Testament books, isn't this interesting, begins and ends each and every one of them. And I mean each and every one without fail by mentioning grace. I checked it out again last night. I looked at all 13 letters that Paul wrote and I looked at the beginning and end of each one and the only thing that he consistently mentions at the beginning and ending of each letter is this idea of grace. He was so enamored with God's grace that he couldn't start or stop a letter without somehow mentioning it. Truly, folks, the heart of our walk with God, the heart of God himself, all centers around this reality of his grace, and quite frankly, we can't hear enough about it, and yet we all do have a lot more to learn about it. So we're now about halfway through this initial series on God's grace, and I want to do something a little bit different this morning and then into next week. And that is that this morning and next week, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. That's how we're going to bounce into our message time. They're kind of long stories, as we're going to see in a second They are true life stories. And then coming out of these stories, we're going to go to the Scripture and see how the Scripture backs up the experience that we just heard about. I thought I could tell you both of these stories uh, in one message today, but kind of like preparing a, a banquet in which your eyes are bigger than your stomach, I did that this week. So I realized last night we're going to do just one story and two scriptures today, and then next week we'll pick off where your outline leaves off and do the other story and another scripture. <laughs> so for those of you who who have to leave with all the blanks filled in, it's not going to be your day. And uh, you're going to have some mild anxiety, but you'll get over it, and, uh, and we'll pick it up next week week. And uh, and so I want to tell you some stories about grace. Now some of you are saying right now, Jamie, that's not the orthodox way that we do things around here. We open the Bible, we teach from it, and that is usually how we do it. So why a story? Philip Yancey in his book on grace says that grace is better conveyed than it is explained. In other words, if you get too technical about grace, you, you sometimes lose the understanding and even the experience of it. And listen to what he says. He says grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the most pure scientific mind. In other words, try to cut grace open too deeply and too technically with just our mind, and we run the risk of losing it. In our hearts. And stories, especially real stories, help remind us of the heart and the experience behind the truths that we are learning. That's why Jesus told so many stories, or at least that's one reason. And so grace is designed to be delivered up as a package, folks, by God to us and then us to us. And the best way I know for us to get that today and next week is through a couple of stories that bounce us into the Scriptures. Now, before I tell you these two stories, I want to give you a couple of very important caveats. The first one is that these stories I'm going to tell you are real stories that involve real people. Both of them are stories of people that I met and pastored while I was in London, Ontario on my first senior pastorate about 12 years ago. And so these are real stories representing real moves of grace, God's grace in people's lives. The second caveat I want to give you is that because these two stories are real and vulnerable and I have received permission from these individuals to share their story with you, I have changed the names and even a little bit of the circumstances to protect these people guilty or innocent as you will see as they may be. And I've chosen to tell you two stories of grace this week and next week because as far as I can tell, and this might be the most instructive thing for some of us, is that there are really only two things that you and I can do with the grace that God gives us. And that is that we can receive it and then we can live in it. That's all you can really do with grace. Because as we're going to see today, you can't earn it, you can't control it, you can't kind of control it out of God. But really all you can do is recognize it when God puts it before you, we'll see what that means as we go along today, and receive it into your life and then live in it bask in the grace that he has given you and allow it to change you so i'm going to tell you two stories this week and next week one about receiving god's grace and the next week about living in god's grace so let's dive in the first story is pat's story and it's all about receiving grace Pat was born in the late 1960s in a small farming community in southwestern Ontario. Just picture a medium-sized Midwestern farm. That was his typical family growing up in. And it was a great successful farm back in the 60s and 70s, but as all of us know from reading the news, most farms took a dive in the 80s and they had to sell it. And Pat grew up, as you might expect, in a small rural town. His dad was a hard worker, he went from farming to truck driving, not a very intimate man, kind of tough and stern, but a great provider and a great protector. And there was a lot of boredom, as you can imagine, in Pat's childhood, which left lots of room for trouble, we'll get to that in just a minute, and yet probably most important for our purposes this morning, in Pat's home there was a real sharp distinction between the religious and the irreligious. His mom was religious and his dad was irreligious. His mom had come to Christ and faith in Christ as a young woman shortly after she got married. And she became very serious about her faith and very conservative in her faith. And yet his dad, Pat's dad, wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus, thought the Bible was a bunch of made-up stories and was as irreligious as one could be. And very early on, Pat chose the irreligious route. He lost his virginity at the age 13. He got into alcohol by age 16. He had the mouth of a sailor by the time he was 11. His friends and parents would describe him as very cocky and wild. And the two great loves of any kid growing up in southwestern Ontario, then and back then and even now, are hockey and baseball. If you've ever been to London or the southwest Ontario, every kid falls in love with hockey, and every kid wants to be either a professional hockey player or a professional baseball player. And that's what Pat did a lot as a kid. And yet, as for most kids, pros was not in the cards for Pat, and so at 18, he went off to the factory, lied to get a job there, and landed a good job as a lineman in a medium-sized manufacturing company. And during this time, right about this time, he met a girl. And yet, not just any girl, a special girl named Julie. And she was pretty, she had the same rough nature as Pat, she had a party spirit that could match his, and she was willing to put up with him. And if you put all of that together, six months into it then, like so many couples today, they moved in together. And the next few years, as you can imagine, were kind of stormy. There were many fights, a lot of partying, they moved in and out a couple of times. But finally in 1994, they decided to have a child and settle down together. And so they had a child. And then they had another child a few years later. And as you can imagine, kids tend to bring a mellowing effect to one's life. They started to settle in with each other. And after seven years together and two kids, they decided to get married. I thought that was a good thing. They decided to get married. And so get married they did. And now they were your typical Southwest Ontario Ontario secular kind of decadent working class family. And yet, folks, don't ever let the outside fool you into thinking you know what is happening on the inside. Have you found that yet in life? People can put on such a show as to what they want you to see, what is happening on the outside. But what Jesus taught us is that that's not always indicative of what's happening on the inside. And while all this was going on in Pat's life, there was a thirst in him building from his childhood on a spiritual level. St. Augustine once said that there is a God-shaped vacuum or void inside every human being that can only be filled by God himself. I think that's true. And Pat was experiencing that from the time that his mom and his aunt started telling him about God. And through all of his rebellion, he was, this was building up inside of him. And yet there was a huge problem. And this was a huge problem. And that was that there was no way in Pat's mind that he could fit into the brand of Christianity that he saw around him, especially in his mom and his aunt's church. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to pick on particular denominations or anything like that, but we need to wrestle with something that we're going to wrestle with here this morning at our church, and that is the kind of message that we give to a seeking culture on what it takes to become a Christian and in Pat's world in southwest Ontario some uh, 12 15 even 30 years ago the church that his mom went to was called the gospel hall gospel hall is a good conservative evangelical church rather conservative in nature their statement of faith I have in front of me here and would match any other good orthodox statement of faith but they were a rather separatistic church back then maybe they still are now They were a rather legalistic church back then. What do I mean by that? Well, they had a lot of rules at the gospel hall. If you remember the gospel hall, you didn't go to shows, you didn't go to movies, you didn't dance, you didn't smoke cigarettes, there was no drinking at all, and those rules were made very, very clear. There's not a lot of joy in these places. They took their faith very seriously, and there was a lot of joy and even a lot of fear that you might fall back into the world. And probably most hard for Pat is that they didn't welcome newcomers very well. In fact, at the Gospel Hall that Pat grew up in, you would sit in a circle, and if you were a visitor, you were given a seat outside of the circle, and it was actually called the seat of the unlearned. And whenever Pat would visit there, he would have to sit in the seat of the unlearned in order for him to attend church. This was the church he grew up in. And it didn't take him very long to realize that he could not measure up very well. In fact, listen to his own words as he would tell his story. He says, and I quote, there was just no way I could live like them. The standard was so high, I could never be that righteous, I concluded I could not be saved. And this obstacle loomed high in Pat's mind for years. And then one day, his aunt invited him to a new church that she had found. It was in London, Ontario, a few miles away. And all she said was, it's different, try it. So wanting to please his aunt, he decided he'd take his wife Julie and the two kids to church, and off they went to London. And he tells the story, and I love it when he tells it, of how angry he was on the way to church. You ever been there? He wanted to kick himself for taking up his aunt's invite to come to church. He was grouchy. He was cursing at the kids. And finally Julie said to them, "'What is your problem?' And he said, I I just know what's going to happen today, Julie. I know what's going to happen. We're going to get to church. It's going to be old hymns. It's going to be old people, no child care, boring message, judgmental attitudes, and a bunch of rules. He said, I'm just not into that. And yet when he got to this church, he was taken mildly off guard. There was lots of people. They were seemingly friendly. Even some of them were rather young. In fact, he would tell the story that at first he sat there in the sanctuary and he thought to himself, well, I might be bored, but there's a lot of pretty women that I can look at here if I get too bored. That was this guy's mindset. His kids were not with him because an elderly lady met them at the door named Wilda and Wilda took his two-year-old and said, oh, honey, you don't want to have him in church with you. Let me take him to the childcare, to the nursery where he'll be a lot better. And off she ran with his kid. So he sat there in church, just he and Julie, and they were looking around, and then everybody started to sing. He got that. But they sang a little bit differently at this church. They sang like they meant it, they sang like there was joy in their hearts. Pat would eventually learn that's called worship, and that it's a place where you can give your heart and your mind to God. A- and he got that in this church. And yet, all of this was just window dressing compared to what happened next. The pastor was talking about the people that Jesus knew. And that particular Sunday, he was talking about Matthew, the tax collector. And the pastor actually shocked everybody by sharing with them that if Jesus was there in London today, he probably would not be at their Sunday evening service at church that night. He'd be down at the Rideout Tavern, turning water into beer, rubbing shoulders with lost people. He didn't last very long in that church, but he shared it that night (laughs) at the church that day. And that caught Pat's ear. And he thought, why would Jesus be doing that? And the pastor went on to share that Jesus hung around with lost people and that Jesus made it very clear to them that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. And that he came to seek and save those who were lost and that it was all about his grace. And that Jesus came to bring grace to people who felt they could not measure up to the religious establishment around them. They couldn't measure up to all that they looked at because none of us can. And that's where his grace comes in because Jesus came to bring us forgiveness, something we could not do for ourselves. He did for us. And where Pat sat that day, everything was different. The light went on in his head, and he realized that Jesus came for people like him, as the old hymn writer would say, just as I am, without one plea. And right where he sat, without coming down an aisle, without praying a prayer, he believed. And he received Jesus Christ into his life. And he knew that day that things would be different. He knew that he didn't have to measure up to God, that God had did the measuring, found him to be way short, but provided the necessary distance in Jesus Christ. And this Pat could accept. And he came home that day. He found grace. Or as we're seeing in this series, grace actually found him. Folks, I told you earlier. I want to take you to two scriptures. Let's go to the first one right now. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to John chapter one verses sixteen to seventeen. You might have seen this scripture before. I want us to look at it in light of Pat's experiences, as well as the context that John gives it to us here. John chapter one verses sixteen to seventeen. This will blow you away. It says, "And from His, meaning Jesus's, fullness, we have all received grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want you to focus first on that little phrase, the law was given through Moses. Do you all understand what that means? John's not using it in a positive way here. He's not saying, hey, the Old Testament was really great. Y'all ought to read it, which is true, by the way. The Old Testament is great. Y'all ought to read it. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the law that was given us through Moses had a purpose And its purpose was to lead us to grace, but it would do something first in us that would prepare us for grace. In other words, this law, which would prove impossible to keep, would reveal to us our sinful and fallen nature. In trying to keep even the basic Ten Commandments, we would realize that we couldn't, and this would make us realize how fallen and far from God that we are, and it would convict us of our sin. And in so doing, it would also then give us a thirst for grace. It would give us a thirst for what Christ would eventually bring. Don't miss this. The law, as Paul would call it, would be a tutor leading you to Christ, teaching you about what your soul really needs. It would leave you frustrated, but leave you frustrated in a good way because it sets you up for grace. And once you get this, that the purpose of the law was to reveal our sin and make us long for grace, you're ready for the second part of John's words here, and that is that grace upon grace has now come to you in Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, folks. It's in Jesus' completed work for you And I'm talking about his sinless life, his death on a cross as a substitute for your sins, his resurrection from the dead that proved who he said he was. It's his completed work for you that is the grace that God places before you and asks you to receive. And 12 years ago this year, sitting in a rather small church in London, Ontario, Pat realized this. He realized that, yes, the rule-centered church around him was right. He was a sinner, and he had fallen way short of God. But they were wrong in asking him to adopt a bunch of rules in order to come into the fold. What he realized is that the only thing required is to believe and receive Jesus Christ and the grace that he brought. He was helpless to do anything else. And the point that I want us all to see, folks, and this is so important as we move on to talking about living in grace next week, is simply this. Look up here on the screen. It's the only thing I ask you to remember today. And that is that the grounds of our justification then before God is the completed work of Jesus Christ and it's appropriated by faith alone in Jesus. I I know some of you know this, but I want you to feel it on a deeper level here today. The grounds of our justification before God, we'll explain what that means in a minute, is the completed work of Christ. That's His grace. And it's appropriated by receiving, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ. I I told you earlier we're gonna look at two Bible passages for, for, for us today. Let's look at the second one right now. If you brought a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Very small passage, very power packed. Romans 3, verse 28. It says this it says for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law very interesting for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law that word justified here is a very interesting and powerful word it's the Greek word and it means to be justified it was a legal term back in New Testament days that, get this, carried with it the idea to declare someone innocent, to declare someone not guilty, to declare someone righteous, most usually by a judge. And so it's fascinating. What Doug Moo points out in his volume, his commentary on Romans is that in this context, this word does not mean, and this is a subtle distinction, but important to make somebody righteous, though God does do that for those that he saves. And it doesn't even mean in this context to treat someone as righteous, though, again, God does treat us as righteous when we embrace his grace in Christ. But in this particular context, this word specifically means to declare someone righteous. That is the believer in Jesus Christ. For the believer in Christ, God is calling him or her not what he or she is not. You guys have heard that before, that God calls you what you're not. No, that's not what it's saying. It's actually calling you what you are. That in Christ, because of his completed work for you, as you embrace Christ, you become, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of God. And so actually on a legal, formal level, declares you righteous. That's what it means to be justified in Christ. And so listen to how Doug Moose says it. This is radical stuff. He says, and I quote, to be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his or her sins. It is a legal reality of the utmost significance. Whoa. That means anybody who's found in Christ has been legally justified, legally acquitted of all his or her sins. You've been forgiven, past, present, and future. You've been justified before God. He declares the believer righteous, not because they actually did anything, but because of the grace that's found in Christ, his completed work. It's called justification. And once you get this, folks, then you're ready for the second part of the equation that's also found here in Romans 3.28. And that is that you will notice that this justification is only made real. It's only appropriated into our lives by, and I quote, faith apart from works of the law. Do you see that there in verse 28? faith apart from works of the law, which simply means you cannot earn it, you cannot do enough good works for God to declare you righteous, you can only receive grace and forgiveness offered you in the completed work of Christ to have this judicial acquittal before God. That's why I say, maybe now you get it, that the grounds of our justification before God is the completed work of Christ appropriated by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, And yet what makes it so hard for you and I to receive today is that we live in a world in which this kind of thinking, and tell me if this isn't true, it's just so contrary to the way that we think, isn't it, Frank? We just don't think like this. I mean, think of any time in the world today where somebody does something sacrificial for you, it's because you either did something to earn it or they expect you to do something that will kind of pay you back, pay them back for it. It's just the world that we live in. There's a great movie that came out a few years back, about 15 years ago, called Saving Private Ryan. Maybe some of you saw it. Many of the men did. Many of you ladies did too. It was a very uh, real-life portrayal of the D-Day invasion in Normandy, Normandy back in World War II. And the movies began with 27 minutes of absolute gore as they try to recreate the invasion uh, on Normandy in France there in the beach back in World War II. And once you get through the first 27 minutes of the movie, then it becomes a plot line of where you got this small group of army rangers who now have to go back into enemy lines and try to find a guy named James Ryan and save him. And the reason is, is because James Ryan had already lost three brothers in World War II, and the army didn't want him to, the mother to lose a fourth son, so they said, you've got to find Ryan, bring him safely back here. So the whole plot of the story is about these army rangers going back, on, on, again, on the, on the, during the Normandy invasion, and trying to find Private Ryan. And, and the story is, as they go along is that many of them lose their lives, and they show how that happens, and eventually they find Private Ryan and they're about ready to bring it back to safety, but there's one last bridge that they need to, to protect, and so the last few rangers and Private Ryan are protecting this bridge, and they eventually all lose their lives in the process except for Private Ryan and the head of the army rangers, played by Tom Hanks. And at the end of the movie, I won't ruin all... Well, actually, I will ruin it for you. At the end of the movie... <laughs> Um, Tom Hanks is dying because he's been mortally wounded and he's sitting there dying and 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 private Ryan is there and and his very last words and I get this to private Ryan were this he grabs him and he says earn it earn it and then he dies and and then the next scene in the movie they they fast-forward 50 years to where now private Ryan is an old man and he's at the cemetery there in Normandy and he's sitting at uh, the grave of this guy who told him to earn it, and he's weeping. And he's weeping uncontrollably, and, and his wife comes over, and he looks at his wife, and he says, have I been a good man? Have I done good things? In a typical Hollywood format, she says, yes, you have, and, and, and the movie ends there, and we all kind of feel good about ourselves. Earn it. I would say that's a very American way of thinking. That, that's the way our culture thinks. Somebody does something sacrificial for you, you better earn it, either before or after. The only problem with that way of thinking is that if that's the way you think about your Christianity, you got it all wrong. Jesus did not look on the, from the cross, look to you and say, earn it. If you think that that's what happened, you got it backwards. Jesus looked out at the cross to you and he said, you can't earn it. Your good works are just filthy rags in this whole process. You can't bring any of that into the equation. You're too far gone. But what I'm doing right now for you, dying on a cross, that's going to earn it. All you can do is receive the grace that I'm putting in front of you. Folks, the first lesson that my friend Pat teaches us that is confirmed by the Scriptures is that God has made his grace available to all of us and what he has done in Christ. But you got to admit that you can't do it. You've got to admit that you are completely inadequate in light of a holy and righteous God. And you need to turn in your mind and heart. That's what repentance means. Turn in your mind and heart and receive his grace. And so here's the challenge for those of us who have already received his grace. And it's many of us here today. And it's a challenge I want to give you. And this is bold. But look up here on the screen. And that is when will we realize that others, meaning others who are lost, do not need to adopt our particular lifestyle practices, habits, and behaviors in order to be saved? I sat there in my office last night and I looked at that phrase and I said, Rasmussen, do you really have the guts to put that up there on the screen at Scottsdale Bible Church tomorrow? I thought, yep, no guts, no glory. So let me repeat it again. When will we realize that other people do not need to adopt our particular lifestyle practices, habits, and behaviors, now here's the key phrase, in order to be saved. I I ask you that question, church, and I think a lot of churches struggle with this. Again, it was Pat's dilemma. Look, look, uh, much of what the gospel house was about back then, it might have been right or wrong. We could have that debate. Certainly the morals that came out of it were morals that would keep your soul pretty pure. So, so no one's arguing that what they were doing was necessarily right or wrong. We might not like the seed of the unlearned, but other than that, I mean, you know, we, we might be okay with it. But when you say to a lost culture that in order for you to find Christ, you need to live like us, live like we are currently living, as those who have followed Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, you confuse the issue. You confuse it greatly because they're not ready to live like you. And by the way, neither are you when you first got saved. I Think about it, folks. This is so ludicrous. Asking an erring culture to come into a place like Scottsdale Bible and become like us right away in order to be a Christian is like asking somebody who's 50 pounds overweight to lose 45 of it before they join Weight Watchers. You wouldn't do something like that. You wouldn't say you got to lose a bunch of weight to join the club that's going to help you lose weight. No, you'd say, come on in, I know you're really fat, but guess what? We can help you lose weight. We were fat once too. In fact, our pastor's kind of chubby. Believe me, everybody struggles with this. We can help you in the process. That's what we would say. And yet, when it comes to our faith, we do the exact opposite. We develop a bunch of values and lifestyles and behaviors, look, that I'm going to argue are wonderful. I embrace most of them with you, most of them. And yet the reality is, is that when I look at my lost neighbor, those aren't the things that I trumpet. I don't sit there and say to my lost neighbor, well, you got to become like me, and if you become like me, then I guess you can be saved. No, I say to my lost neighbor, I don't think you stand a chance of really finding God unless you fall on the mercy seat, admit that your good works, as good as they might seem to you, really aren't all that much realize your utter mess before him, realize the grace that you need before him, and just plead for mercy. Just plead for the mercy of Christ. That's what I did 30 years ago. And you know what? If you do that, don't worry about anything else. Just do that. As we're going to see next week, you'll start the process of living in grace. And Lord willing, over time, you will change. I'm going to share next week that I believe that part of being a Christian is developing fruit. If any of you doubt that, I'm not arguing that. I think fruit is a natural byproduct of being a follower of Jesus. And I think every Christian should have some. And if you don't, well, we'll talk about that next week. But that's far different than protecting the purity of the gospel and what it means for somebody to be saved. We need to be very careful what salvation is and don't confuse it and mix it all up in our personal value system that might be gray areas, that might even be black and white issues. We need to be very careful not to confuse the gospel. Now, maybe this will help you with things that flow out of the gospel. In other words, Scott gets saved. And over time, things start to change in Scott's life. And some of them might be gray area values that he adopts for he and his family that you might agree with or not agree with. Some of them might be very black and white issues that all Christians need to do. But on both, both of those issues, they are very different than what initially saved him. What initially saved him was the completed work of Christ and the faith that received the work of Christ before any good works, before anything changed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do a lot of confusion to people if we don't explain it to them that way. I want to tell you another quick story that's, again, a risky story, but it brought this to me so clearly that I... I just don't think I'll ever forget it. About uh, five, six years ago in my previous church, there was a gal there that was just, and many of you have friends like this, was just a a wonderfully uh, loving and obnoxious evangelist. Can I say it that way? You all have people like that in your life where they just have such a contagious love for God that they wake up every day and say, if I don't share Christ with somebody today, I'm gonna explode. And this gal was that way. And I loved her for it. I mean, she would just, everywhere she'd go, she would find a way to transition the conversation to the gospel. You know, being in a restaurant. You know, there's four walls in this room. That reminds me of four spiritual laws, you know? And then she'd <laughs> go right into the gospel. I mean, not subtle law, but she got it out there. And she had actually written a book. She had been an abuse victim, uh, sexually abused, when she was a, a, not even a teenager yet. And uh, it, it just marred her for life. It created eating problems and lots of problems in her life. And, and, and God really grabbed her and reformed her over time and, and, and healed her. And she wrote a book on it. And she was at one of the local bookstores in, in uh, the Cleveland area signing books. And she met another gal there. And uh, her and her husband were sitting there signing the books. And she met this other gal. And uh, typical, what my friend would do, she shared Christ with her. And uh, they got together for another meal later, and this other gal accepted Christ. It was really cool, and it was very authentic. I mean, she received Jesus Christ into her life. Now, what do you do when that happens? Well, she started bringing her to church. Her and her husband started bringing this gal to church, and it was great. And as I was interacting with this gal, because she sat in the third row of church for the next three, four years, I actually did the funeral for her dad and everything. I realized after a couple of conversations that um, this gal was a lesbian. And, and I realized that not just that, but she'd been a lesbian for about 10 years and was in a committed relationship. And, and I thought, wow, well, that, that kind of gets dicey, doesn't it? And, and so one time I pulled the gal who led her to Christ, I pulled her aside and I said, do you know that, that so-and-so is a, um, you know, and she says, a lesbian? And I said, yeah. And, and I said, did you know that? And she said, yeah, mm-hmm, fully aware of that. And I said, uh, have you talked to her about what the Bible says about that? She said, well, Jamie, I think she knows, and, and yes, I have, and, and she's fully aware that, that uh, you know, that that's not uh, part of the Christian lifestyle. She's aware of that, and I said, well, um, what's she going to do about it? And uh, this guy looked at me and said, well, I'm hoping that someday as she grows in Christ and as we disciple her and as she gets right, more and more right with God, that she will make the gutsy decision, as painful as it will be, to um, say that's not part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. She said, I hope that happens. And then she looked at me, and I'll never forget this, and she said, because you could see how I was thinking, she said, Jamie, she says, um, I had an eating disorder based on my abusive past for about the first 15 years of being a Christian. She said, I was hundreds of pounds overweight. You, you, you knew that. And, and she said, and you know, the Catholics at least have the guts to call gluttony a sin. And, and she said, you know, and, and clearly every day, I never honored God with my eating. She said, but it took a long time for, for God to, to bring me around and to bring that healing in my life, and yet he eventually did. And I was so glad for people who hung in there with me and, and showed me the grace that was mine in Christ. Folks, I thought about that later. I thought, I wonder what would happen, this was a church of about a thousand people, if those thousand people knew that there was a lesbian in the third row every Sunday. I thought, I wonder what they would think. I wonder how they'd react I wonder what they'd say to her. I wonder how they would treat her. I wonder if they would honor her salvation as real. I wonder if they'd have the right theology to do so. Please don't hear me wrong. You guys know I'm not defending that lifestyle here this morning. I'm not. I'm just saying that that is a stark example, a very stark example of somebody who can come to Christ just like all of us have and still have a lot of areas that God needs to work on in their lives. And yet, let's just be honest, we have made certain sins today. We've made certain things the unpardonable sin, haven't we? Because they're hot societal issues. They're huge deals in our mind. Just like the legalistic church back in the 50s that had this pecking order of rules. We have our own today. We don't mind R-rated movies. We don't mind dancing. We don't mind cards. We don't even mind drinking. The church is a lot more free on that level. Now listen close. But if somebody were to visit Scottsdale Bible Church, I wonder sometimes if they would hear the message that in order to become a Christian, you got to vote in a certain way. We're a pretty conservative church. I wonder if they would hear the message that in order to become a Christian, you need to adopt a certain lifestyle in a certain way, or you can't become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you need to start thinking certain ways about certain societal issues or you can't become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to have certain belief distinctives, theological distinctives, reformed or not, in order to become a Christian. And believe me, folks, you know me. I have a rigid lifestyle that I live by that flows out of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I have certain doctrines that I hold very dear that flow out of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm only glad that in 1981, when somebody led me to Jesus Christ, They didn't put before me all those things. That what they put before me was the grace of Jesus Christ and said he came for you, he died for you, and if you embrace his grace, you will be one of his. And at that point, God grabbed me. And he grabbed me so hard that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, he has changed me. We're going to talk about that next week. But it begins with his grace, not the works, His grace. I I hope I'm being clear on this. I'm taking a lot of risks in using the examples that I've used here today. You could hear a pin drop here right now, and that's more uncomfortable for me than you. (laughs) But the reality is, I hope we're all understanding this aspect of God's grace. I prayed up last night, I prayed up this morning that I would not be misunderstood, but that we would do justice to the scriptures and the truth of God. We're going to sing a song right now, as we've done the last two weeks, an old hymn that many of you are familiar with. The hymn that we're going to sing today is called, and I can't believe that I don't, I don't, I forget the name of it, but you're going to like it. And uh, it's really good. (laughs) Blessed Assurance. How could I forget that? Wow. At least I didn't say Christian life, whatever. Anyways, (laughs) we're going to sing Blessed Assurance right now. And our ushers are going to come forward to receive our elders fund offering as we do that. The elder fund offering, as many of you know, is an offering we take for the poor and needy in our community and in our church. And so um, we hope you give generously to that. And, and, and as we sing this song, uh, just think about the gospel of grace. Think about the assurance that you get when you receive Christ. Why don't you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there are many of us here today that need to ponder the gospel in deeper terms than maybe we have up to this point. We believe in Jesus. We trust him for eternal life. We're on the road to righteousness and sanctification and holiness that you have us on. But Father, we've um, maybe not thought deeply enough about what the gospel really is, what we're asking of lost ones around us. I pray God today that we would see that what we're asking of them is to admit their helplessness, their sinfulness before a holy God and how Christ and him alone and his completed work becomes the grounds of our justification, appropriated by faith and faith alone in Jesus. Father, there might be some of us here today that have yet to even do that in our lives. We've kinda had a mixture of faith and good works, and so God, maybe even right now, where those folks sit like Pat 12 years ago, believe and receive the pure gospel of Jesus right where they are now. I pray, God, that that would happen in their hearts and their minds, that God, you would truly give them blessed assurance that you would make that real to them that Jesus is now theirs, a foretaste of glory divine. God, I pray that as we give now that you'd use these resources to benefit those in need. We're really blessed, we know that. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We just share a bit back right now. Receive this worship, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.